Welcome to Protect, suicide prevention training podcast for healthcare professionals. I'm Manan, consultant psychiatrist, founder, and head of faculty at Progress Guide. Good day. This is Mahi, your host. We are on to episode 17. Manan provided an overview of the SES module in episode 13, and we explored attitudes to suicide. Episode 14 introduced the AWARE framework, and we discussed the impact of anxiety on decision-making. We explored how attempts to provide hope and convey that things will get better might get in the way of thorough exploration in an assessment. Anxiety in assessors also manifests as reassurance-seeking in the form of blanket safety questions. Can you keep yourself safe? Given the dynamic nature of risk, they are often pointless and do little to actually address or mitigate outstanding risk. In episode 15, we discussed two mental spaces, rational and rationalizing. Rational is information first, decision later, and rationalizing is decision first, followed by selection of information to support the decision or action. This theme plays out in all the aware factors. We then had our third guest episode, Shazi Thabi, a fairly long content-heavy episode in which Shazi outlines some of the challenges of supporting autistic people in suicidal crisis and how those challenges may be overcome. In episode 16, we returned back to the Protect course content and we explored how much waiting assessors put on certain diagnostic groups, namely personality disorder and substance misuse and how suicidality in these groups often count for less. Also, how an acute course of illness gets more priority than chronic, although those who are chronically unwell may have lost touch with hope. And finally, how suicidality caused by modifier social factors are often considered by healthcare staff as outside their core remit of work, and these patients end up receiving less support than those with a clear-cut biological mental illness. Manan, what did I miss? That's actually an excellent summary. Uh, In the last episode, we also outlined different care approaches. So the response to acute suicidality should be like a response to a person having a myocardial infarction or a heart attack, jump in and do whatever needs doing. The response to chronic suicidality is more along the lines of supporting someone with severe diabetes, helping the person to take control and supporting them through appropriate education and safety planning that suicidal urges can be mastered. And finally, the most risky, acute on chronic presentations, which is like a severe diabetic person having a heart attack. In these patients, it is really important to predefine what an escalation of risk looks like. Also, remember that all three sub-themes described, like a diagnosis of borderline personality along with substance use, a chronic cause, and a host of social issues may be present in the same individual. And for each of those factors, if the risk is minimized, we may be overlooking the needs and risk in a person who may be perilously close to an attempt. This is a nice segue into the next aware factor, agenda, because often patients with personality disorder and substance misuse are considered to have an agenda, like are they trying to get admitted Or are they trying to Q-jump and get a backdoor detox? Sometimes these agendas are related to social factors, like they've got housing issues 
and are just attempting to get rehoused through an admission and so on. Were these the kind of scenarios that were highlighted under the gender theme of the WHERE study? Yes, that is correct. Essentially, we want assessors to pause and think, how often are you responding to an agenda in an assessment? And is it skewing the outcome? How would you define an agenda? Put simply, an agenda is a desire or motivation to achieve a particular outcome. Sometimes they are clearly stated, and other times it's implied or perceived by the assessor. What we found in the AWARE study was that once you pick up an agenda, it begins to influence information processing. So the way in which you are viewing the person, the way in which you are viewing the problems they are stating. So that relates to your opening statement about agendas. When you asked our listeners to pause and think, how often are you responding to agendas? Yes, it does. Throughout the assessment, the assessor is interacting with people, processing and accepting the referral, triaging, collating information, and the face-to-face assessment itself with the person in distress and their family. During these activities, agendas may be picked up in a referrer, patient, carer, by the assessing practitioners, to which they end up consciously or unconsciously responding. How does an assessor know that they are responding to an agenda? It is not unusual for an assessor to try and work out what are the person's needs? Why do they want this? Why now? Now all of that is fine. That's what an assessment is, assess to establish the needs. So when I said what are the person's needs, you can change the word person to the referrer the patient, the family member, etc. But when you begin to wonder, is there a secondary gain? Is there a hidden agenda? Essentially, when you begin to second guess what someone is saying as the reason for their referral or for their presentation, you can rest assured that you feel there is an agenda and you are beginning to respond to the agenda rather than to the real reason that the person has presented with. You mentioned agenda in the referrer. What agenda could a referrer have when requesting an assessment other than getting the person assessed? Rightly or wrongly, assessors very frequently felt that the referrer had an agenda. Generally, they were judgment calls on referral appropriateness. Referral credibility was often scrutinized when reviewing a referral. This varied from conclusions about a referrer's risk-taking to passing the buck as they were going on leave and wanted someone else to take responsibility. What kind of statements did you get that related to patients having an agenda? So I have a nice example here. Suicidal ideation was in the context of depression because she has a child. So I think it's always worth having a look when there's a child. I got the clear sense that she was downplaying it as she did not want social services involved. We needed to do something. Here, downplaying it means her distress or her needs or her symptoms. So in this example, the assessor felt that the patient was not being very open as she was worried about her child and social services involvement. So in the first statement, the assessor's interpretation of an agenda resulted in decreased sensitivity to suicide risk, i.e. they've only seen her twice and have not done their part, and in the second, she might be trying to conceal her symptoms increases the assessor's awareness of risk-related factors. Yes, almost diametrically opposite impact. Altered care responses 
were most obvious when judgment calls were made about the appropriateness of the referral. Assessors often did not accept the referral if they felt that the referrer had not done their part, and even if they did, it impacted on the assessment outcome. The risk and the need in the person in distress does not change with whether there is any truth to the claim of lack of diligence on part of the referrer. And then there was the opposite, where they might have got over-involved or more intrusive or more risk-averse if they felt that the patient did not want to engage for some reason. True. Attempts to avoid hospitalization were picked up and responded to fairly robustly. Other than influencing risk sensitivity, there was also a spectrum in terms of the type of response. Sometimes the response was positive and other times negative, which actually escalated the risk. Can you provide an example of a perceived agenda in a patient which actually increased the risk? These were primarily the implied requests, as for example, for admission in people with a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, were often met with skepticism. Given inpatient beds are such a scarce resource, and in the previous episode, you talked about how the focus for chronic risk, as in people with borderline personality, should be psychoeducation and safety planning, rather than admission at every presentation. Isn't skepticism warranted? Yes, it is. But it is the way in which the conversations pan out. When we have finished all the aware factors, we will do some case-based discussions regarding what and how to communicate with a person in crisis who has a borderline personality disorder. In brief, certain agendas when perceived brought about a non-empathic response. For example, she's angling for an admission. I need to keep her out of hospital. This became adversarial in nature and the study revealed that the assessors were often unconscious of this mental stance, but the patient perceived this stance very quickly. Remember, people with borderline personality are hyper aware of abandonment and rejection. So when they perceive this stance in a clinician who is discounting how unsafe they are currently feeling, they feel a pressure to prove their suicidal distress. And this escalates the risk in the situation. Okay, that makes sense. What about positive responses? The AWARE study revealed that care requests regarding their ability to care or struggling with burnout, particularly when openly stated, received a positive and empathic response from assessors. This was, of course, perceived as positive uh, by the carers and helped with relational safety and carer confidence. So here is a statement from the AWARE study relating to a spouse. I think her husband felt that she needed to come into hospital. He was quite distressed by what she had done again. He felt it was a heavy load to carry at the moment, too much to cope with. One can see the thinking of the assessor that the carer is desperate for a break and needs our help, perhaps to keep caring for the longer run. So openness brought out a positive response. This is, of course, true in all walks of life. Yes, generally, if the referrer, patient or carer were open about what they wanted, assessors seemed to pay heed to the request and tried to accommodate it. It's when they felt that someone was trying to work the system that their position would harden and the perceived agenda would begin to influence the information processing and the decision that was arrived at. So perception of an agenda leads to a particular kind of response that may escalate the risk? Yes. 
we do want assessors to reflect on whether their response to the person they're assessing, whether that is escalating the risk in any way. The AWARE study clearly showed that assessors' responses had a range of foreseeable as well as unforeseeable outcomes. These outcomes were quite varied, from making a patient with borderline personality disorder feel that now they had to prove their distress by self-harming, to a patient downplaying their symptoms in response to a conservative approach in an assessor. And by conservative, I mean when an assessor feels that the situation is too risky and they need to take restrictive means like bring someone into hospital or get other agencies involved. We also saw the converse in terms of empathic responses to stated or even sometimes perceived agendas. Such responses were clearly considered helpful by the person, the family, and the referral. So let's pull this together in terms of what assessors need to do. Assessors need to mindfully scan themselves. Am I picking up an agenda? If they find one, avoid the temptation to rationalize their response like, this is just an anxious GP who refers everyone, or this case manager is going on leave, so is referring everyone on their caseload. Such judgment calls change the outcome of the assessment without addressing the actual cause of the presentation, i.e. the risks have remained the same, or might be that the risks have escalated and have become worse as now the patient feels that the hope they had for help has now been dissipated because they did not get the outcome that they were looking for. This is not an uncommon theme in serious incident reviews where a patient attempts to take their life after a presentation for admission or what they believed would result in an admission. So, if you perceive an agenda, make the implicit explicit. Seek clarity from the patient and their family. Bring it out into the open as to what you feel may be their expectation. Do it with sensitivity and have an open and honest discussion with them regarding the reasons for why they might feel the way they do. This is a fairly nuanced discussion and we will discuss this further when we do a case-based discussion at the end of the AWARE framework. This moves us on to the penultimate theme, resources. Actually, all AWARE factors are interlinked. Resources impact agendas and agendas and responses to agendas often relate to resources. So the next question we want to ask our listeners is, do resources impact your decisions? In healthcare systems with finite resources, this must have a considerable influence on care decisions that are made. Actually, our research revealed that most practitioners were quite conscious about the impact of resources on decision-making. So that is good. But most took a stance that they tried their level best to carry out the assessment independently, say, for example, of the bed state. When directly asked about bed pressures influencing decisions, most practitioners said, no, it doesn't. Given the crisis team gatekeeps beds in the UK, we asked clinicians, why then did they feel the need to go and check the bed state before going out to carry out an assessment? So what kind of responses did you get? All sorts. From, oh, it's a long-standing habit, to get a sense of the overall system pressures, how might my day look like. Practitioners indicated that if a patient was very unwell, they would ensure that they get a bed. By that, they meant that if it was necessary to create a bed by facilitating an early discharge, they would do so. 
So they were saying that decision to admit was not resource-led, but a discharge could be brought forward because of lack of beds in the system. Yes, they were saying that, but we clearly saw fluctuations in the threshold for admission based on bed availability. What kind of statements did you get in the WARE study? Okay, so here is one. We knew there was a bed. Actually, we knew there were plenty of beds on the ward. So we kind of thought, you know what, this lady could just do with a break and some more assessment of her depression. So the implied bit of the statement is that we admitted her for a break because there were beds. If there weren't any, most probably we would not have admitted her. That is something concrete, like for beds. How about home treatment? We actually saw the same phenomenon for work pressure, like in home treatment. So when the team was extremely busy, the threshold to be taken on significantly went up compared to the time when the team had fewer patients in home treatment. In fact, in the study, a couple of clinicians actually got offended when asked about the impact of workload on the decision to be taken on or not for home treatment. Do you have an example? Here is one in which the clinician said uh, it had no bearing on the decision. So the decision was not to take a suicidal patient on for home treatment. What does that mean? If we were short staffed, we wouldn't have taken him. No, it had no bearing on it whatsoever. So how should assessors tackle this tricky issue of resources? Stay rational, stop rationalizing. That was a bit cryptic. Can you elaborate? <laughs> Look, it is not uncommon a situation where four patients might be competing for a single bed. Clinical triage and prioritization is a reality of modern day practice. However, rationalizing or dressing up a resource-led decision as one that has been made in the best interest of a person in distress actually does little to enhance safety. If anything, it makes the situation worse as it covers up for a potentially dangerous situation. So do not rationalize away your decision to say not admit as the best outcome for the patient. We hear rationalizing statements all the time. When there are no beds, we might say, we should try to use the least restrictive option and treat at home. This is in keeping with recovery principles. In home treatment, we might say, it is time to discharge as staying too long with us will create dependence and our team only provide short-term support anyway. When the reality is, we are trying to manage the high workload of the team. In a community team with a long waiting list for psychological treatments, we might say, previously for this person, therapy has had very little impact. They might be better served with practical support from the third sector, and so on. These rationalizing statements make us feel better about the decision, but do very little to actually address the cause with which the person is presenting or the risk that they pose to themselves. So stop rationalizing. And instead stay rational? Yes, stay in the rational space. You might make the same decision, but the way in which you arrive at the decision is quite different. For example, the assessor might think, ideally, we should admit him. However, there are many unwell patients that are worse than him. So the assessor understands that prioritization is a clinical reality, but they also recognize their decision for what it is. It is a resource-led decision. So they engage in stringent safety planning to mitigate the risk adequately. They stay open to the idea of a future admission and closely monitor the risk to ensure 
that the decision is revisited or changed if needed. What you are saying is stopping oneself from rationalizing would make practitioners engage in a much more stringent safety plan, one in which they actively look to mitigate the impact of a resource-led decision, like not to admit someone due to bed unavailability. Absolutely. Beware of the tales we tell ourselves to manage our cognitive dissonance. Think for a moment. How would your thoughts and actions look like if you could be open about the clinical realities in which we work? Now, most organizations do not have the maturity to call a spade a spade. But if we are to make things better and safer for the person in suicidal distress, we need to make the implicit explicit. We need to accept that we make resource-led decisions frequently. We should not rationalize it away. In fact, we need to be open and transparent and engage the patient and the family in a discussion. Ideally, I would have liked to have admitted him, but we haven't got a bed at the moment. So let's all work together to make it as safe as possible. And we can revisit the decision in future and keep it under close monitoring. We will then document it for what it is and take steps to reverse the decision as soon as the constraints on resources have decreased or if things have escalated and deteriorated further. The kind of things you're talking about is the stuff of nightmares for hospital administrators. Yes, I know. And I, and I understand that because everyone gets worried about legal consequences and lawsuits if a life is lost and there is a bad outcome. You know, and, and it's documented. It was, there were resource constraints uh, on that day and it's, it's written in the patient records. But these resource constraints are impacting clinical decisions every day. That is the reality of clinical practice. If anyone thinks that is not the case, they are lying to themselves and are actually standing in the way of patient safety in the short term because you have rationalized away your decision. You haven't done a thorough safety plan that needed to be done in that situation. And in the long term, the hard yards that are needed to address these resource shortages do not happen because someone has been rationalizing their decisions away. We are all guilty of this. So please stay in the rational space. Do not rationalize away resource-led decisions. Maintain a watch for it all the time and stay mindful. I think we've run out of time today. We have covered two very important aware factors, agenda and resources. Remember, the show notes and images will be at the blog on www.progress.guide and you can get the Protect Suicide Prevention Guidebook from Amazon. There are a number of online video courses as well. Pause and think, when you perceive an agenda in a person, does it change the way in which you respond to them? Think about routine normal life first and then take that awareness into the clinical setting Are you more likely to keep a request if you feel that someone is being open and honest with you? Also, spend time reflecting on the last week, last month, maybe even the last year. What kind of rationalizing statements you might have used when faced with resource constraints? Pretty certain everyone does struggle at times with workload. And does that impact the threshold for entry into your service? Share your musings with us. Tweet your thoughts about agenda and resources and tag hashtag guide progress. It helps get the word out about the podcast to more professionals and supports progress to practice. You can email your thoughts to us at admin at progress.guide with your suggestions 
and comments, particularly if you have questions and want us to cover certain topics in the discussion. In the next episode, we will cover experience, the final factor in the WHERE framework. We will also cover creep, crash, crawl, a common phenomenon, but covered in a unique fashion within Protect. Please spread the word. You can connect with Manan on LinkedIn or follow our LinkedIn page by searching on LinkedIn for progress.guide. We are also on Twitter and YouTube. Our Twitter handle is at guideprogress. As usual, please do follow the podcast. There'll be weekly episodes every Friday and share it with your colleagues. Your ratings will help get the word out. So please don't forget to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Audible or whichever channel you are listening on. Helping healthcare professionals become aware of their decision-making processes is an essential step in creating a workforce that is self-aware. Remember, together we can make a difference. Tune in next Friday and we will discuss how your past experiences shape your clinical decisions. Thank you for joining us today and keep spreading the word. 